If you are offended by potty talk, well, then you might be offended. It's Friday, April 8th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. On this date, 50 years ago, The Godfather was in its third week of release. It was the number one movie in America and would retain that status for 34 weeks. By the end of 1972, it had become the highest grossing movie in cinema history, not adjusted for inflation. Also on this day, 50 years ago, the five actual families of New York crime were absorbing the events of the night before. WNBC's Jim Hartz had the story that made national news. This morning, Gallo himself was shot to death while celebrating his 43rd birthday in a restaurant in Manhattan's Little Italy section. A single assailant entered the clam bar by a side door and started shooting, hitting Gallo three times. His bodyguard was also wounded in a fight which spilled out into the street. At least 14 persons witnessed the killing, including Gallo's wife, a bride of three weeks. She was among those questioned at a local station house. The assassination of hotshot Joey Gallo, effectively a button to the Second Columbo War. I mentioned these two events, the Godfather, the killing of Joey Gallo, which was thought to be in retaliation for an attempted hit on an actual godfather in order to make a point. Gangland slayings, not national news anymore. In fact, gangland slayings are rare. When they do happen, they're treated with the proper perspective as internecine violence in a small and relatively important part of American life. There was a time when the mafia made real money and had a big impact on regular citizens. Here are some facts from a 1985 New York Times article written around the time that federal authorities, Rudy Giuliani prominently among them, and he's quoted in the article around the time they were taking on the mob. One economist estimated that the mafia's penetration of the construction delivery, food and private garbage collection unions and industries, among others, cost consumers hundreds of millions of dollars each year in New York City alone. Ronald Goldstock, who headed the State Organized Crime Task Force, said that a mob monopoly of the carding industry costs consumers $10 million a year. The state attorney general, Robert Abrams, filed suit against eight concrete companies, three of which he said had links to organized crime. The estimates of that, they were overcharging New York City $40 to $50 million a year. The carding trade, Fulton Street fish market, concrete, docks, all under the mafia's thumb. And this didn't even count for the actual danger and sense of lawlessness that frequent public assassinations and attempted assassinations engendered. This was from 1978's WABC coverage of the funeral of Joe Colombo. And no major recognizable organized crime figures came to pay their last respects to the dapper Don head of the family, once bossed by the late Joe Profacci, the olive oil king. While there were a great number of politicians at the rally at which Colombo was shot, including at least one congressman, at least one member of the state legislature, I didn't see any of those people today. Dangerous and pervasive, but now the mafia is in retreat. In fact, it's nearly dormant. With that as a prelude, I have come to an insight. Right now, right now, 2022, the mafia is more a force for good than ill. How can I say that? Well, The killings are basically over. The economic ramifications are very minor. But you know what lasts? The art. Oh, the art. Not just the Godfather movies that can still be watched with fresh eyes, but the greatest show in TV history, The Sopranos. Recent works like The Irishman. Not as good as the others, but still worth it. This isn't to say that all the killing and pilfering was worth it for the art. 
But the art is still here and the art is good. Good fellas can be enjoyed by a whole new generation that doesn't have to worry about the scions of olive oil kings whacking rivals inside Umberto's clam bar. The fact is the government put the mafia out of business via prosecution or just taking over their profit centers like gambling. But the art obtains. On the show today, I got a call from a pollster. And lucky for you, I recorded it. Who's up, who's down, and who has terrible things being said about them in the New York State race for the Democratic nomination for governor. I shall bring that to you. But first, Argyle, Ohio is the kind of town with a million donuts, one murder a year, and an eight ice cream and a donut shop. If none of this makes sense, well, it's all part of the Audible original Summer in Argyle from Bob and Nate Odenkirk, father and son. Eight ice cream and a donut, you say? Well, here's an ad for that. Hi, hello. Eat ice cream? We don't, because we haven't. And we want to give it to you when you pay. That's our family promise that I eight ice creams and a donut. Argyle's only ice cream parlor. Every day we have eight delicious ice cream flavors That's, and one donut. That's right. Only one lucky customer per day will get to enjoy our homemade donut. So this summer, come on down to eight ice creams and a donut and taste an eight flavor medley and one donut. Arrive early if you want the donut. It goes fast. We're located at the, at the corner of Salami Street and Millipede Avenue, straddling the sodium and bug districts. And remember to bring some form of payment. Pay for your ice cream and we'll give it to you. Number of ice creams available at the store may vary, but donut quantity will not limit one free sample per couple. Funny ads, musical numbers, and murder. Summer in Argyle and Nate and Bob Odenkirk up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Argyle, Ohio is a quaint town founded by an explorer destined for California, got to Ohio and said, eh, good enough. And the that'll do ethos has pervaded the town from their annual hot dog eating contest to the achievements of their high school sports team, the number two pencils. They also have an average of a murder a year. Well, not an average, literally just one and only one murder a year. It drives the town policeman crazy. Nate and Bob Odenkirk, father and son team, are the writers of this series. Bob is also the narrator. And I began with Nate, who joined on a somewhat crappy phone line, and asked him what it was like working with a legend who was also his dad, so therefore he could just skip over the, ooh, I'm working with a legend phase. Nate, I'm sure you love your dad. I've heard interviews where you attest to the same, and kids idolize their parents. But... I would think that a young comedy writer would probably be pinching himself to work with uh, someone of the influence of Bob Odenkirk, but I'm going to assume you skipped that phase. Do you think that's good or bad for the process that you weren't too wowed by, you know, working with a legend, let's say? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's always strange when uh, somebody in my my company describes my dad as a legend, uh, because it's true. Uh, on, On one hand, it's true. But to me... He's just a guy who's been around for 23 years, uh, been, yeah, been nearby me forever. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I think that it's in terms of the actual process, the writing process, you have to get over yourself and you have to, you know, be uh, working with the, the, the person as an individual and not so much uh, their, their legacy and uh, their cultural impact, right? I have to be able to come to my dad with a terrible joke in order to make a good joke. Um, and so I would say the fact that I, he, I grew up with him changing my diaper uh, bodes well for me coming to him with uh, mm-hmm. shitty jokes. Definitely. <laughs> you know, it's really true. I, I, uh, um, I don't know, Nate, Nate, um, grew to like my stuff as an older kid. I mean, we goofed around when he was little, but he didn't see Mr. Show till he was like 14. Uh, and so, I, you know, I, also I think it's hard for Hollywood kids to really think of their parents as particularly uh, gifted or special. The parents are just the people who are, you know, always there and have all kinds of issues and arguments and things that are breaking and going wrong. But, um, you know... I also, I've got to say, Argyle was a fresh uh, opportunity for me because um, it was the first time since Mr. Show that I felt really allowed to cut loose and be really funny and silly and not worry about grounding it or making sense. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of value to making sense, but the notes you get when you're writing any comedy piece with a network or any buyer are constantly notes about logic and uh, this freewheeling kind of kooky comedy that, you know, they did in the goon show and they did in um, some of Python and we did on Mr. Show sometimes is so much fun. And you can hear all the actors in this show feeling it and going nuts. Yeah. Were there ever times, Bob, when you early on worked with a legend, you had the pinch yourself uh, situation? Absolutely. I mean, I was probably a lot more intimidated 
intimidated than Nate was by me because those legends didn't change my diapers. Um, <laughs> and I didn't see them as shit carriers, mm -hmm. um, but rather as legends only. But working with Steve Martin briefly for one week on SNL was really hard for me. And um, I, I talk in my book, my memoir about working with Spielberg and that was challenging for me. Um, there's there's not many people, but there's a few that do intimidate me. So I read in your book that Nate was born a week after Mr. Show wrapped. And I also yeah. read, but Nate, you tell me, the way your dad at least portrays it is you found his comedy, or at least the Mr. Show comedy, through the Tim and Eric show. So I was thinking of like a child of Paul McCartney who got into Oasis. And then Paul was like, let me show you where this comes from. But is that right? Is that trajectory basically right? Yes, if you can imagine a first grader uh, watching Tom Goes to the Mayor, uh, which is Tim and Eric's er early, early work, uh, and loving it. If you can picture that, um, that's pretty much exactly uh, how, how that happened. I mean, I will say I, I, I was aware of some moments in Mr. Show, and I'll add that, uh, you know, inevitable references like i knew about change for a dollar uh when i was a kid because my dad would just make jokes about uh make jokes about it make references to it uh so i had to see it so i, I had seen specific parts of it but i didn't know my dad was who he was uh until i watched mr show and then i went oh he got a show he got a whole show for himself well, okay, okay, yeah, I guess I guess that's pretty good. But it it started through Tim and Eric, uh, which is why I am the person who I am today. So, where would you say your tastes differ? Is it generational or just specific to your individual tastes? Oh, um, that's a good question, um, Nate. I think you might be able to answer it better than I do. I I think even though Summer in Argyle is pretty off the chain. <laughs> pretty much cut loose, unmoored from reality, I still probably was a little more insistent upon a kind of an internal logic for it. But um, it is the province of young people to go uh, totally crazy with their performance and their ideas. They're just more in love with ideas. And the older you get, the more you want kind of a sound logic and and stuff but nate i don't know if that was true here you tell me what your impression is uh as much as what my dad uh has done and influences me and you know the the people around him so uh of course david cross brian Posehn, stephanie courtney uh tim and eric and i'll add you know the classics like snl and he's showed me uh, a lot of really off the beaten path shows that I would not, that just would not have made it onto my radar, like uh, the Royal Family uh, from the BBC in the early 90s was, is a huge influence on me. Um, but I'll add that because of my age, the, the, the thing that my dad didn't get to grow up with was the birth and uh, explosion of YouTube, uh, especially between, I want to say, 2006 to 2013, when before YouTube changed the algorithm and you could actually make a living making YouTube videos. Uh, sites like College Humor were a really, really big influence on me. So series like Jake and Amir, Hardly Working, uh, that is also a big part of my comedy upbringing that uh, my dad didn't get to have. And of course, now it's all 10, 15 second videos on TikTok, which make no sense to me. 
but somehow between the two minute college humor videos and the 15 second TikTok videos, I stop laughing. So uh, that, that's where uh, that, that's where it comes from for me. So there's not a lot of uh, there's not a lot of places where we disagree, but I've shown him a few college humor videos and he hasn't enjoyed any of them. <laughs> and I like and I'll just say um, my influences, because I'll tell you, Argyle. Summer in Argyle is very much connected to a strain of comedy that is, you know, uh, you can obviously reference old time radio because it's a radio play with sound design, um, with, you know, music and, and the atmosphere around it. But really, it's most connected to The Goon Show, which is a, Brit a British radio show from the 50s that featured Peter Sellers, among other super talented actors and writers and then uh also connected to um firestein theater which put out a bunch of albums in the 70s really cool smart smart hippie shit that's very funny and uh so there there's not many people who do stuff this unhinged but we got to do it on uh audible yeah uh peter cook dudley moore Goon Show, the Pythons would always cite the Goon Show. And it was, uh, I guess they would call it absurdist, but I think unhinged is the better term because to me, absurdist could be Salvador Dali, but is anyone really getting kind of punched no, in the face? he's, he's yeah. not funny at all. Salvador That's Dali right. is one of my least favorite uh, artist comedians. Uh, never laughed the, at a single one of his paintings. Trying way too hard, that guy. Or trying way too uh, hard, yeah. That's well, right. you know what it is? It's it's this. It's in another thing that, uh, Summer in Argyle is like is there's a improv game that became very popular called a Herald. Um, a lot of the improv teams do it. They learn it. It's a long form improvisational game. And when you do that, what you end up doing is you chase jokes and you chase concepts that just sort of come to you in the moment and you just keep going down sort of rabbit holes one after another. And that's what we did in writing this. So it's somewhat like a written herald as well, I would say. Was the process that you two guys would banter these ideas between yourselves and see what you came up with 10 minutes later? No, the truth is the process was Nate wrote this. He wrote it 73 pages long <clears throat> and he was going to do it with his buddies. And then he said to me, you know, read it if you want, see what you think of it. And then COVID hit. And we were locked down and he was at home and I read the whole thing and I thought, it's really funny. It's got some good structured jokes that we could make more out of. And it's kind of, it doesn't have any swearing in it. And I used to play, um, it had a kind of a gentle nature to it, which a lot of my comedy doesn't have. Um, and I like that about it. And we used to play old time radio and books on tape for our for the kids when they were little and we'd go on trips. And I thought if we made this as a podcast, I bet you could play it in your family for the kids who are 10 years, 11, 12 years old, and they could enjoy it. And the parents could get a laugh too. And um, so I said to him, you know, if you're willing to put a murder in it <laughs> to make it a little more, uh, make raise the stakes a right. little. And uh, if you're willing to rewrite it and punch it up and clean it up, you know, I will do this with you and we'll see if anyone wants to make it professionally. And he said, yeah, I want to do the hard work. Yeah. So we did that work during COVID. And murders are pretty much required in podcasts. I was right? going to say, very, very standard <laughs> note to get from your editor. 
throw a murder <laughs> in just in the middle of it. We'll make it we'll make it work. Uh, no, I, I, I the only thing I'd add to that is uh, I yeah, I did make uh, most of it. But there were a lot of part a lot of parts to it, particularly when it comes to the story element of it that uh, I needed we needed to daisy chain these silly, crazy, insane jokes all together. And that is just as essential as the comedy itself. And that was where uh, a lot of the things that uh, my dad uh, really helped out with. Yeah. So it was absolutely a dialogue, um, but we'd all come to the table with ideas. This is a uh, father working with a son, but it's also probably the bit, well, you tell me the biggest uh, age gap of anyone you've ever collaborated with. Is that fair? Oh, shit. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. Now that you bring it I've up. never thought about that. So yeah. what What about, besides that you both have the same last name and a lot of the genetics, what about just the age difference? I mean, I have talked to a lot of comedians. I talked to Ben Stiller, who, by the way, is, as you know, his dad's dad, great comedian. And we talked a little bit about how his kids won't laugh at half the jokes in Tropic Thunder. They just think, you know, they're wrong. So there is like a, a more of a sensitivity for good and bad. But does that show up in your, the interplay between you guys and your opinions of comedy and what's funny? No, I think the bigger issue for us is what I shared at the beginning. You know, you spend all these years writing projects for studios and for TV and they're constantly wanting to ground it and even kill the comedy in it just to make it, I don't know, it's a way to critique anything is to look for more logic in it. Now, usually it's helpful to have logic. It's really a good thing for a story to feel grounded and connected to the world. But as a comedy writer, it can really kill your buzz you know it can really take the fun out if somebody keeps going why would someone do that and that doesn't make sense and that's not logical well you know comedy on some level it isn't logical that's why it's fun i mean it's a little crazier than the real world if you're doing it right and um so i think that while this project summer in argyle has that ability to go anywhere I think I've had some of that trained out of me over the last 40 years. And so being near Nate's writing and his inventiveness, it reminded me of what it's like to be a young person with how many ideas you have and how you don't care about justifying them. You don't give a shit. Just it's funny. That's why, because it's funny. And, and they're not wrong. They're not wrong. I mean, it is. Um, and so we got to do that because Audible just said, go nuts. And, you know, that's the same thing HBO said for Mr. Show. That's the same thing Adult Swim said to Tim and Eric. And it's a great and beautiful thing when a buyer, uh, a, a, a platform is telling the artists, go nuts, do your craziest shit. And that's what they said. And so for me, if there was anything, when you talk about the age gap, Nate is still in that place where he's just making himself laugh at lots of small things. And and I'm trained up to be constantly grounding everything to the point where where's the, the humor goes away almost. Uh, I, would, I would I would add some heavy dramas too. Yeah, I, I'd add that like, yeah, besides that small uh, footnote there, the bigger difference is not necessarily in age, but in comedy sensibility. And they don't always go hand in hand. I 
because my dad and I have a very similar sense of humor, if not almost exactly the same, that unlocks uh, a level of um, commiseration and uh, enthusiasm to work beside each other that I may or may not have with somebody who's my age who has a totally different sense of humor. I have worked alongside a lot of really funny people who just do their work on TikTok and I I don't find their stuff funny. I don't I don't have an impulse to work with them particularly. Not because I don't think they're funny, but just because we have different senses of humor. And so in that sense I feel a lot closer to my dad than I do uh you know to somebody who is in my age who you know, does something like TikTok. That's the more important thing. The name of the podcast, or shall we call it the Audible Original, is Summer in Argyle. It's written by Nate Odenkirk and Bob Odenkirk. It's hilarious. And if you want to sample it, the first minute or so of almost every episode could just be a standalone sketch slash commercial slash surgeon who's also a magician. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, Bob and Nate. Thanks so much. Mike, thank you so much. Have a great day. Really love it. Mike, good to see you. Thank you so much. And now the spiel. I, like you, I bet, occasionally get calls from pollsters. I always try to take them. The pollsters' job, not easy. Their services are of value. And what if I, the host of a reasonably moderate podcast, demures when they call, but all the hosts of the crazy podcasts engage? It would skew the data. Over the years, I've gotten a couple of calls from Quinnipiac or other recognizable pollsters. I'm always game. But recently, I got a call from an outlet identified as Dynata Global, formerly SSI or Survey Sampling International. I did not recognize the name. The pollster could not give me further information. I later looked them up to see that they had a 1.6 rating out of 5 from the Better Business Bureau. But I know these questioners, they're just doing their jobs. They have quotas. Plus, I was interested in the politicians. They were asking about all candidates for the Democratic nomination for New York State governor. Speaking about the Democratic primary election for governor in June, if the primary election were held today and the candidates were Jemani Williams, Tom Suazi, and Kathy Hochul, for whom would you vote? It's very hard to say. You know, I have never, I have All right, so far, so normal. I knew that Kathy Hochul was the incumbent. I also knew of Jamani Williams, the public advocate who's a socialist, and Tom Suazi, a congressman from Long Island. The pollster started with, what if I told you some things about Kathy Hochul, some things that are good? Would you like those things? First woman governor of New York. <laughs> Kathy Hochul hit the ground running, has tackled multiple crises head on, and is getting things done for New Yorkers. She extended the ban of evictions, accelerated rental assistance, mm -hmm. and released $200 million for food assistance. Mm -hmm. she signed and then she asked, what do I think about those things, the things I politics. just heard? Would that be very convincing, somewhat convincing, a little convincing, or not at all convincing? Yeah, I think that uh, it's somewhat convincing. And they checked back with me on my intended vote. It was not affected. 
Then they started reading some accolades, not for Jamani Williams or wildcard Andrew Cuomo. And that gave me an idea of who Dinata was and who may have paid for all of this. This, what I was suspecting, might be a push poll. Swazi is a common sense Democrat who gets things done. Swazi believes in the core democratic values of helping the least among us and improving the lives of New Yorkers. He will bring a fresh common sense perspective and energy to New York. Red flag one. Did you hear it? Invocations of common sensedness. Two of them in 15 seconds. But she continued on. He has a 15-point crime prevention plan to make our streets safe again, a plan to lower poverty taxes. And, and on with the Swazi-palooza I found myself in. Finally, she asked how convincing I found all that. Is that a very convincing, somewhat convincing, a little convincing, or not at all convincing reasons? And I had to say, wow, 50, I mean, a 48-point plan would be... Really impressive, but 50 points? I don't know if I could gainsay that. Two common senses, a little bit of a red flag, but I'll say somewhat convincing. And if all the Swazi hagiography hype ended there, I'd find it, I don't know, not really convincing. But it did not end there, because now we were on to the airing of grievances. First, the nice pollster woman laid on me some things about Kathy Hochul that I might find very disturbing. When New York propose a law to provide driver's licenses to undocumented immigrants. Hochul opposed it and said she'd arrest the immigrants who applied for licenses. And then there was this. Hochul is engaging in a kind of pay-to-play politics that makes a mockery of government. She's raped 22 million... Now, I know that Kathy Hochul's lieutenant governor is being investigated for campaign fraud, but I know of no credible allegations that Hochul is corrupt or soft on crime. I mean, Hochul has made crime her number one issue. The distance between her and Swazi on crime is really narrow. Here's Hochul. Time and time again, New Yorkers tell me that they don't feel safe. They don't like what they see on the streets. And things feel different now. And here's the man who I suspected was trying to paint her as soft on crime, Tom Swazi, speaking in Penn Station. I came here the other day and it was terrifying. I mean, it was really a scary environment uh, because of the fact that there is a lot of homeless people that are staying here in the... That statement, by the way, got Swazi some flack from the left, which I think he enjoyed as it burnished his image, the image he was looking to convey. So I waited for the pollster, the push pollster, I'm really strongly beginning to suspect, and I thought she might tip her hand by going light on Swazi's negatives. I girded myself for that. Now let me read you some statements about Tom Swazi. Oh, here we go. Governor. Tom Swazi will transform New York's troubled public schools by bringing social services directly into schools. But in fact, she didn't launch into a string of would that bother you type insinuations. In fact, she didn't mention any negatives at all, just a whole lot more positives. And put the children on a path to success. Quite a different sheen than the Hochul statements, but I'll say it's somewhat convincing. It wasn't, but I was just stringing her along until she got to this. Help fix the broken bail reform law, remove any DA who refuses to enforce the law, and get guns off our streets. 
What do you mean he'll remove any DA who refuses to enforce the law? The DA is popularly elected by the people. How, how would that work? Again, you're just reading the script, right? Yes, sir. Okay, I'm sorry. I will say it's not at all convincing. I felt bad for the pollster, but not bad about Kathy Hochul, which was the whole point of this exercise. But there was something gnawing at me, something crying out to be heard beneath all of this. Finally, I put my finger on it. Which two of the following issues do you want the next governor to address most? Making housing more affordable, investing in and improving education, reducing taxes, reducing health care costs, addressing racism and discrimination, reducing crime, addressing climate change, making government transparent and accountable, strengthening the economy. Housing and the environment. Is that a rooster in the background? I hear some sort of cock crowing. She could not confirm. Hearing the rooster made me less likely, somewhat le- a little less likely to be angered at Tom Swazi. It seems like he, or forces favoring his candidacy, paid for the poll and took up my time. I am not certain if the design was to simply put accusations against Kathy Hochul in my head or to actually poll which of those accusations landed the hardest. There's also a chance that another candidate, say a former governor, could be using the poll to raise Hochul's negatives while attempting to leave the impression that it was Tom Swazi spreading the manure. Was it a gray ops or a black ops psyop operation? I contacted the Swazi campaign, and they got back to me with a disavowal of all things Dinata and push polling. In any event, I'm glad I was able to capture on tape my time with a push pollster and that I could bring it to you. And you're going to have to get up pretty early in the morning if you want to put a clever gambit like that past me. Thanks, Rooster. We're good. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson is the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pesk is the longtime equipment manager of the Minnesota State University Screaming Eagles football team. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.